1: And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever
0: you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome back to Inside the Hive, taking you inside the news with the people who make it, shape it. I'm Emily Jane Fox. I am here solo this week to introduce what I think is a really fantastic episode about the human toll that the war in Ukraine two weeks in is taking on both the people who are fleeing incredible destruction and devastation there, and all of us who are watching it. Um, we have Miriam Elder, who is our fearless editor at The Hive and Bounty Fair, uh, who is a true expert in empath, and she really shares her wisdom and knowledge of what is happening over there. and what it is like to be making the impossible decisions to flee your home and your family and to take your children from absolute horror and devastation and put them in train stations or in bunkers underground or over borders and to not know what tomorrow is going to bring and um, all of the the horrors that that entails. And we also have Rebecca Star, who is an author, a mental health advocate, former teacher, and my sister. Uh, And she talks about how we talk to our children about what is happening here and what we should tell our children when we aren't sure if there's going to be safety or if there is safety, how to process what is happening around the world. And the combination of these two conversations is incredibly powerful to me as a new mom and as just a person with blood pumping through her veins. And I hope that it is helpful to you to make sense of what is happening and to also shine light on sometimes what I think is lost in these conversations where it's politics and Putin and war strategy and economic sanctions and all of those things are incredibly important. But I think what moves the needle most and what moves me personally is talking about the people who are impacted by these political decisions and these economic sanctions. And uh, for those of us who are incredibly privileged enough to maybe not be touching this or feeling that incredible devastation or insecurity every morning, and we are so fortunate and we should uh, not lose sight of that for one second. But for those of us who have the ability to sit back and reflect on this instead of uh, reflexively react to it, how we can process it better and help those around us who may be less well equipped to process it, process it. So please take time to listen to this. I think it's incredibly important and it was useful to me to work through this. So I hope it's as useful to you here. First, we have Miriam Elder and then followed by an interview with Rebecca Foxstar.
0: Hi, I'm Michael Kalori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab.
1: And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for
0: over a decade. The new three-part docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterized the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large.
1: Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, Slash Hive.
2: I'm here with our fearless editor this week, Miriam Elder. Hi, Miriam. Hey, Emily. I'm so happy you're here. You are a personal favorite, a fan favorite on the podcast, and truly uh, the person who I have been looking to have on here every week, talking about what is happening in the world. You are easily one of the most knowledgeable people on the subject, um, on most subjects, but but in this subject in particular. And so I'm just so grateful to have your voice and your brain on this.
0: You're too kind. Thank you for having me. Can you talk to me about
2: your connection and experience here, just so we're situated um, and we can understand your extreme knowledge and experience in the region and and understand some of your sources and understanding of what's happening, both in a micro and macro sense, before we dive into some stuff th- that I know I want to talk to you about.
0: Sure, uh, my experience is part personal and part professional. I was uh, born to two people who fled the Soviet Union separately in the '70s, and you know raised us uh, raised us here in the U.S. So there's a personal connection there. My whole family is Russian, um, but then because I always had an interest in journalism and international affairs. I spent a bunch of time reporting from Russia. The bulk of it was from 2006 to 2013. And yeah. Watching
2: the families facing uh, the decision about whether they're going to flee their home and larger families and businesses and everything that they own and know and feel comfortable in and leave for a great unknown um, and watching the children in particular packed into train stations or cars for days on end or sleeping in basically bunkers underground is just tearing my heart out. And I, I just need to know what you're, you're hearing and seeing and thinking as you watch this, too.
0: Well, you know, we're, we're speaking on Wednesday afternoon and this morning um, was arguably the most horrific attack that uh, we've seen in this two week long war. Uh, Russia bombed a hospital uh, in the city of Mariupol in the south. There are horrific images coming out of pregnant women being carried out on stretchers. It was a maternity ward in there, right? Yeah, it was a maternity ward. So I definitely want to talk about the people who have fled. They're going through unique horrors. But the point that we're at in the war right now is when you are really seeing the brunt of a truly gruesome Russian military strategy. It's something that people have been sort of horrifically waiting for since this began. I think there was a lot of attention, rightly so, on the vast resistance that Russian troops have been facing from Ukrainian fighters and from regular regular Ukrainians. But the reason that Ukrainians have been yelling for for help is because they cannot defeat a ruthless army like this on its own. And Russia, of course, has a strategy of targeting hospitals and targeting civilians, and that's what we're seeing today. So the images of everybody, but women and children in particular, being just being attacked uh, on purpose in the middle of this gruesome war is, is truly horrific. Isn't that a war crime? It is a war crime. And already the conversation around war crimes is, uh, you know, is happening. So Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody understands really how long this is going to last or how this war will develop. But one hopes that there will be a time for accountability. Uh, Whether Putin survives to that point is a question, but certainly hope that war crimes trials would follow this.
2: I know that that was getting a million steps down the road, but but it I I sort of just feel like it's worth underscoring that these are not normal actions when it comes to war. These are, it's just unthinkable what is happening. And of course, accountability has to happen down the road, but, but as we're living through them and and watching them, it's, I, I just feel like we need to take a step back and realize this is not just normal course of terrible war stuff. It's to a different level. You, you, and I, uh, we are on a, a weekly sort of news call every week that we have with other reporters who write for The Hive. And you brought up a story that I had seen, too, uh, about this pediatric cancer hospital. And I almost can't even talk about it, but I think we should talk about it. Can you explain what happened and
0: what what the people who were being treated in this hospital were facing? Yeah, so images began emerging uh, last week of kids who were in the middle of cancer treatment when the war broke out, because of course war, you know, works on its own schedule and just makes you think of what the people there are going through and we think about the disruption of like not being able to go to school or not being able to go to the store, but these are children who without this treatment will will not make it. And there was an incredible convoy that was organized uh, to get these kids out. Uh, I would recommend listeners read the story by Mark McKinnon in the Globe and Mail, the Canadian paper. He has an incredible story of how these 73 children and their caretakers and siblings uh, were loaded into school buses and ambulances, ambulances for the kids who could not sit upright and had to lie down as they were driven uh, over the border to Poland. But it's a horrific story, but one with whatever we can call a good ending in these in these times. And so they're all in safety in Poland right now. Thank God.
2: It's amazing. I, I don't know if this is the same story, but, but something I was reading about it yesterday, uh, there was a doctor from the hospital who was quoted saying, I think most of the children will become indirect victims of those Russian army attacks because they will die because of the interruption of treatment because of infections and we can do nothing. And to me, that is, you know, you see as, as people who are as fortunate as we are to be in the United States and safe and able to pick up medicine from a pharmacy and drive in our car and not sit in days of traffic. We are the most fortunate people to be able to do all those things. But we see the images or we listen to interviews or, or we consume pieces of this throughout our the course of our normal day. And you think about the big destruction, the bombing of a hospital casualties, soldiers, and you see phone calls with leaders and press conferences with President Biden, and you sort of see the war coverage, but it's rare that you hear about the interruption of day-to-day life. And that quote to me felt like these children are already going through something extraordinarily devastating, and now the extraordinary devastation is being interrupted.
0: Absolutely. And then there was something else that stuck out to me in the story that I read that, these kids are being transported in the middle of their treatment across the border, and uh, two of them had to go in a separate vehicle because one had chickenpox and the other had oh. COVID. And so it's just one thing on top of the other. Something that you know is so difficult in, like you say, our privileged lives over here, but uh, throw these sort of circumstances into it, and it becomes almost uh, unbearable to contemplate. But of course, we all have to contemplate it.
2: I listened to. Um an episode of The Daily over the weekend. And there was a reporter who was also fleeing Kiev and she was going to different cities and talking to different people who were leaving their homes along the way. And um, some people were leaving husbands and fathers and sons and brothers behind. Um, there was one young girl who was interviewed who had to leave her hamster behind. And I'm wondering if you can speak to both on a personal level and then as someone who's speaking to people who are over there or, or one degree separated from people who are over there about both the decision to leave and then what they face when they do leave.
0: Yeah, those, those are, are two separate but connected questions. Um, the interviews I've been watching, the stories I've been reading, it just seems like people in shock and disbelief Mm -hmm. everything has happened so quickly. You have to remember that as recently as two and a half, three weeks ago, people weren't certain that this was going to be their reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was hope in some of the diplomatic efforts. And then just, you know, when you're living your normal life, and this is life in in Ukraine, going to the cafe, going to your job, hanging out with your friends, I, I think just as it might be hard for us to picture it, it was also hard for them to picture it. And, you know, the decision to leave, it seems like a lot of people are fleeing with maybe one bag and contemplating the future that's in front of them. Right now, there is uh, an extraordinary amount of openness in Europe. It's rightly been the subject of a larger conversation about why Ukrainians are being welcomed in a way that Syrians were not, that Afghans were not, that Eritreans mm-hmm. were not. Uh, it is- What's your read on that? I think that there are multiple reasons. I think one is absolutely racism and and xenophobia. I think, you know, the fact that most Ukrainians, not all, but most are white Christians, mm-hmm. um, it just feeds into the racist idea that, you know, the only people who can be integrated into societies are people who are quote unquote like us. Sure. Um, I think that's part of it. I also think that like the specter of Russia is very like unique and close to a lot of people in these countries who the older ones, you know, lived during the cold war and had this constant threat at their shoulder. Um, But I think, you know, it's, we'll, we'll see how it is going forward right now. The EU is offering three-year visas to Ukrainians so they can live and work there. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's like a very dire economic situation in Europe. The UK notably is not accepting Ukrainian refugees I'm a little concerned about the future of Poland, which is like wonderfully open right now, but a lot of Poles were kicked out of the UK during Brexit. And if you have any sort of employment pressure, I can see the picture changing over time. I just hope that this kind of open welcoming persists for for these people and in future, you know, can be extended to people fleeing conflicts that are not uh, only in Europe obviously these families are fleeing imminent danger and sort of
2: any ability to take your child or your elderly parent out of immediate certain danger, you would take anything. You would sleep anywhere. You would take any train. You would you would go without any creature comfort for a lifetime if you knew that, that the people you love the most and for particularly the people who can't help themselves were removed from that kind of harm. But it is not easy to leave everything that you know and everything that you've built and everything that you have for a completely uncertain land. And I wonder if you can speak to what it would feel like to start over.
0: I mean, I can speak to, you know, what my, in, in it was a very different situation, what my parents yes. went through, but, um, you know, my mother, uh, came here as a refugee. My father came here, he got political asylum and they mm-hmm. met here. No, no, no. Um, it really is such a different situation. I'm almost loath to make the comparison. But they fled thinking that they would never see their parents again, their siblings again, uh, their friends again, because travel was restricted from the Soviet mm-hmm. Union. You know, the people who are fleeing now don't know if they're going to see their husbands or brothers or friends again because of the war Yeah. and the potential outcomes of the war. And I think it just you know, is there any greater human tragedy than not knowing the future of your of your family? As for what it takes, I don't know. These people, you know, these people don't want this, right? This has been thrust yeah. upon them because of one man sitting in the Kremlin. And some people that I have heard of think that they're gone just for a little while. I'll say, I'll also talk a little bit about Uh, Russian friends who have fled Moscow because the assumption is also, well, there already is, you know, there's a new law that you can face up to 15 years in prison if uh, you call the war a war. Except for one, every Russian journalist friend of mine has fled uh, Moscow in the past five days. Um, And not to take the attention off Ukraine, but there, you know, everybody says, I fled with one little suitcase and a bag. I spoke with one friend who, as she was packing, who said that she wasn't even going to tell her mother. (laughs) It was fear that drove them out of the country, but now it's changing. But at that point, in that moment of fleeing, it seemed to me like a lot of people were thinking, we'll just get out while we figure out how things are and then we'll go back. And now it's kind of settling in that, oh, like the the country that we were living in doesn't exist anymore. can you know, can we ever go back? Mm. Ugh. I'm so glad that you you brought up Russia,
2: and uh, it's something I wanted to ask you about because what we're seeing now is in order to stop Putin, you're seeing really you're you're seeing sanctions and and businesses stopping to operate uh, in Russia, from everyone from Starbucks to McDonald's to our parent company, Conde Nast. And I think just today, on Wednesday, as we record this, the central bank limited withdrawals of foreign currency to protect the crashing ruble. And the Kremlin's spokespersons said that what the United States is doing is waging an economic war. Putin's not going to feel that. I think he politically will feel that. I think he's personally fine. And the people in, in the country he's enabled to have gazillions of dollars are going to be fine. But what is that like for the average Russian who is not seeing state television calling this a war. In fact, the way that they're hearing about this is that Russian soldiers are being treated like liberators, freeing them from the Nazis. It's, it's a very different thing. They have no idea about the casualties that are happening to their own soldiers. Yet they are going to be the ones who are feeling the economy changing uh, as a result of what Putin is doing. So I'm so curious about what those families are feeling.
0: Yeah, I think... When we sit and analyze Russia or any country really from the U.S., I think that there's a tendency to see like a unanimity that we don't ever apply to uh, the U.S. itself. So Mm -hmm. the way I've been talking about this case, it's a very imperfect comparison, but it's kind of like in the U.S. where you have where you have your full blown Trumpers and then you have um, the people who see reality. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a part of the design of the sanctions and also this corporate effort that's not technically a part of sanctions, but is to make people, average people, realize, whoa, something is not right. Like, why are all these companies pulling out? But you have a master propagandist in the Kremlin, at least when it comes to internal propaganda, and he will absolutely spin it as see, we told you the West never loved you. It was, uh, it, it only exists to punish you. Um, mm. So whether it has the effect, I'm not sure. It's changing life in Russia overnight. The fact that these products or restaurants or what have you are unavailable. In major cities, a real middle class had grown up in Russia over the past, like 10 to 12 years. That That is over. Um, but whether the intention that this allows people to see some sort of reality or think we are being isolated so extremely for a reason. I think the answer to that, if that's going to happen, is not totally clear to me because you have a president who deploys a propaganda machine that has answers uh, for everything.
2: There seems to me to be little recourse, even if if there was not this propaganda machine or even if they were able to get a VPN and get access to news that is real and it's not filtered through the propaganda machine. What is the recourse for Russians if they do realize that this war is happening because of something that Putin is doing? What
0: what could they possibly do that would actually change anything? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, everyone thinks that if enough people go out into the street that they can really have uh, an effect and the the main opposition leader Alexei Navalny who's currently in jail uh, has called from jail for people to go out into the streets en masse. Obviously, that is that was always dangerous, but it's just inexplicably more dangerous now. In part because of this new law, um, and just in general, we've seen you know over six thousand people arrested in protests over the past week or so. So it's a huge risk. Uh, before, it was a risk that maybe it would affect your job. You could go to jail, absolutely, for sure. You know, 10 years ago, it was 15 days. In the past couple of years, it was longer. But um, 15 years is no joke at all. And I don't know that we've seen the full extent of the crackdown that Putin will be deploying. So asking people to go out into the streets to protest is a huge, huge ask right now. It's a huge risk. Sure. my. Last question for you is, we've
2: seen a call to let six cities in Ukraine, let let citizens leave and get time to leave the cities and to find perhaps more safety elsewhere. Um, It's unclear of how long that will hold or what that actually will look like. But what are these families who would flee facing? And where, I know that, that you talked about countries opening their their borders, but it is taking, and a car ride that would take seven hours is now taking three days, and I would imagine that's only going to get harder and worse, and resources are only going to get more scarce. So what happens next for these people who are looking for safety in the places that they call home?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I'm going to have to give you a little bit of a geopolitical answer. Sorry, but, um, you know, the biggest problem is that Russia has not been allowing these humanitarian corridors to exist. They opened some the other day. They were leading to Russia and Belarus. Um, They were attacking some of these corridors. So the main problem and the horror that people are experiencing on a day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute basis is completely because Russia is not following um, the quote-unquote rules of war. So at this point, really, almost all my intention right now is on the city of Mariupol, where people are hemmed in by Russian forces. There is absolutely no means of escape. Water has been cut off to the city. Electricity has been cut off to the city. There are photographs of corpses in the street, of mass graves. It's a level of horror uh, that nobody should have to experience. So I would love to be able to imagine what an escape route could look like, but because Russia's designs here are to destroy this country, whether militarily or politically by replacing its leadership. Um, I just don't have huge amounts of hope for that.
2: Well, I, I, I think that you have painted the most accurate description of the horror that is happening there and that we should all be engaged in. And this is the cost of what a misbegotten, absolutely horrific war is and is taking shape and and the horror that is causing to everyone who lives there and everyone who's watching it and i'm so grateful for your brain on this for your wisdom on this the only thing i ask you is that you have to come back and continue to, to share your wisdom and your brain with
0: us here anytime thank you emily for talking about this and for having me and if you are watching this video.
2: This is a very special part two of this episode. It's special to me personally because the guest we have is my sister, Rebecca Foxstar, who is not only my favorite person in the world, but a three-time author with a new book coming out next week. Uh, She's a mental health advocate, a former educator, the most incredible mom to two incredible children and an amazing aunt to my daughter, and just an all around a plus human Rebecca Fox Star, Hi Beck. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, it's the perfect time to have you on the podcast. Yeah, I know this is like truly a dream come true. And <sighs> you and I talk all day, every day about everything, but you have an incredible new book coming out next week called mommy ever after it's your third book. The first two books that you came out with were two academic books About uh, postpartum depression, but your children's book, Mommy Ever After, which just go and buy it right now because it's the most beautiful children's book. We just read it this morning to JR. Uh, But it's a book about normalizing some of the harder feelings for your children and for their parents. And so, this week in particular, as we talk about what it is like for children and families in Ukraine and in Russia right now, there's also millions of children in the United States watching what is happening around the world. And so I'm so happy to have your wisdom to a broader audience than just me here today. So thank you so much for coming and joining me.
1: Thank you so much. I am so grateful to be here and feel so lucky to be having this conversation for so many reasons.
2: Yeah. And the, the fact that you and I are able to sit uh, in safe places with our children, uh, your kids are in school and my baby's napping and they're safe. And that is the luckiest thing in the entire world. And you and I talk about that all the time, privately. I want to start, um, before we get into what you do and what you're thinking about this week, uh, and, and how your book relates to all of this, I want to read something that the first lady of Ukraine wrote uh, earlier this week. She wrote it because she's been getting a million interview requests and media requests. And, I think this was her answer to that. And and she says in what she wrote that she needs the media to keep covering this and to talking about this. And so I feel like it's my responsibility and our responsibility here to do this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read a big chunk of it because I think it's important. So she wrote, perhaps the most terrifying and devastating of this invasion are the children casualties. Eight-year-old Alice, who died on the streets while her grandfather tried to protect her, or Paulina from Kiev, who died shelling with her parents. Fourteen-year-old Arseny, who was hit in the head by wreckage and could not be saved because an ambulance could not get to him on time because of the intense fires. When Russia says it's not waging war against civilians, I call out the names of these murdered children first. Our women and children now live, with ba- live in bomb shelters and basements. You have most likely seen all the images from Kyiv and Kharkiv metro stations where people lie on floors with their children and pets trapped beneath. These are just consequences of war for some. For Ukrainians, it is now a horrific reality. In some cities, families cannot get out of the bomb shelters for several days in a row because of the indiscriminate and deliberate bombings and shellings of civilian infrastructure. The first newborns of the war saw concrete ceilings of the basement. Their first breath was of acrid air of the underground, and they were greeted by a community trapped and terrorized. At this point, there are several dozen children who have never known peace in their lives. This war is being waged against the civilian population and not through shelling. Some people require intensive care and continuous treatment, which they cannot receive now. How easy is it to inject insulin in the basement or to get asthma medication under heavy fire? Not to mention the thousands of cancer patients whose essential access to chemotherapy and radiation treatment have now been indefinitely delayed. Our roads are flooded with refugees. Look into the eyes of these tired women and children who carry with them pain and heartache of leaving loved ones and life as they knew it behind. The men bringing them to the borders, shedding tears to break apart their families, but bravely return to fight for their freedom. With this letter, I testify and tell the world the war in Ukraine is not a war somewhere out there. This is a war in Europe close to the EU borders Ukraine is stopping the force that may aggressively enter your cities tomorrow under the pretext of saving civilians. Last week, to me and my people, this would have seemed like an exaggeration, but it is the reality we're living in today, and we do not know how long it will last. If we don't stop Putin, who threatens to start a nuclear war, there will be no safe place in the world for any of us, which I think is harrowing, and I wanted to pull up uh, yesterday, UNICEF released some numbers that more than a million children have fled Ukraine to neighboring cities in less than two weeks since Russia started its invasion. At least 37 children have been killed and 50 injured. That's as of Wednesday afternoon. So it is a very heavy place to start back up. But as Americans who are sitting watching this, the, the kinds of people who the Ukrainian First Lady was talking about witnessing this, and as she speaks about the fact that this was unimaginable to them, and it's not some faraway place in Never Neverland. It is real. These are these people's lives. How do you take this all in as a mother, as a mental health advocate, as a former teacher, as someone who talks to people as an authority about how to speak to your children about fear and anxiety? What's on your brain as you watch all of this and see all of this?
1: I answer this truly wiping tears from my eyes because that was so powerful and so sad. And Mm. I think the first answer to your question is I would tell my children that same thing, that this is sad for me too. Mm. And normalizing the fact that they're going to feel negative emotions like fear or sadness, like you said, and that I feel the same. I think showing vulnerability as a parent is one of the most Empowering things we can do for our children. It models such good behavior for them because their ability to show vulnerability is crucial in their development.
2: Mm. One of the refrains in your book that, as a new mom, and I'm lucky enough to get your private tutelage on this, but it is so, uh, I think, important and relevant to this is that the mother in this story tells her daughter. I may not always be happy, but I'm always going to be your mom. And I think that that is exactly what you're speaking to. The fact that we as parents are allowed to show that we are scared by what's happening and we are emotional about what's happening. We don't have to have a stiff upper lip about what we're seeing on the news. It's it's impossible, of course, what's happening in Ukraine, but sort of what's been happening in the world the last five, six years. It's been, Mm -hmm. we've had two years in a pandemic that has isolated us from the world. Um, and from our families and from school for a time and people's faces are under masks. We had four years under President Trump. We had an insurrection in the Capitol. And if you have children who are not babies like my baby, um, but even my baby who can pick up on energy, there's been a lot to explain to our kids over the last half decade. And I think you giving a roadmap for how to show your kids that it's okay to feel about these things is really something that we don't talk about all the time but it's so important.
1: I couldn't agree more and I think that we're raising a generation of kids who are going to be extremely resilient and as hard as it is for a mom to try to reconcile all of the difficult things my kids and our kids have been through over the past several years I also continue to remind myself and I encourage other parents to remind themselves that with this grit and from this grit comes great growth Mm. and they will become more resilient human beings because we are all going to have hard things happen to us. We're all going to feel things that are sad, hard, scary, boring. We're going to feel lonely at times. So giving them the tools to get through these more difficult, challenging times is so crucial because we're kind of instilling that within them. And, you know, I think about my kids who are in sixth grade and second grade. The last normal year of school that they experienced was third grade and pre-K respectively. Wow.
2: That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Well, knowing that basically in my life stage right now, every week feels like the biggest developmental leap. Obviously, that slows down as your kids get older. But but the difference between pre-K and
1: third grade is light years. It's a different child. They kind of went into quarantine as these children and have been starting to emerge as different children. And I will say as stronger children, Um, And we actually have this conversation a lot. My kids are old enough to understand these things. We talk very openly about mental health in our family, as you know. And I've tried to tell them, I've tried to employ dialectical thinking where I allow two things to be true at the same time. And I always use the metaphor of having two hands because in one hand, I'm able to hold one thing and in the other hand, able to hold something completely different, but equally true and important. So when it comes to the Ukraine Russia war, I have to manage my children's emotions about this and also the things that they hear at school or hear from friends and the things that are true versus not true. And the two things that I try to hold at the same time are empowerment in one hand and empathy in the other, mm-hmm. which are two crucial things for for children and for grown-ups, for people to feel and to understand. So when my daughter asked me last week about our safety right now, she's been hearing things in middle school about world war three and nuclear weapons. And she's concerned for her own safety, which I understand. This Mm -hmm. is, this is scary. I send you texts as a nervous person. I was Um, going to say you and many other people text me every day
2: saying, do we have to be worried? So, so that your daughter,
1: one of my favorite nieces, says mm-hmm. that um, is completely understandable. We are in a time of great uncertainty in so many ways. So I, I agree. It's so un- it's understandable. And she's a sensitive person. Both of my children are. So we have this, this fear. And what I've done to reassure her is to say, like, in this situation, we are so fortunate. We are safe. We are here in the United States. We are so fortunate to have all of the resources we have, the protections that we have. And so reassuring her that though this is a big thing and a scary thing, she's safe to the best of my knowledge is really important because you want your kids to feel a sense of security. That's one of the most crucial things for a child. Um, And you know that even with my, my beloved baby there. And on the other hand, it's so important for me to say, and the families in the Ukraine do not have that same luxury. Mm. And so while you may feel relief that you are safe, tucked into your warm bed with your healthy, present family at night, these children in the Ukraine are going to bed without that sense of security. So that's my way of kind of trying to juggle the feeling of reassurance, but also making sure that they understand that, This is something that is a real tragedy. And so they can feel for other people without having to internalize it as something that they have to worry about for themselves. Mm. It's so powerful to hear you say about it. And of course, uh, it's one of those
2: moments as a parent, when I hear parenting advice that speaks to me, I'm like, oh, of course, like that is of course how you teach your children to be both secure and empathetic, but it's not an obvious thing. You hear it and, and you, it unlocks something, but it is so hard to get to that point. And I think that's so wise and why I, of course, value you so much, but Mm. I'm wondering, we are obviously so privileged to have the ability to tell our children, you are safe right now. Mm. And obviously all the parents and children in Ukraine right now don't have that luxury. And there are millions of children around the world and even in this country, who don't have that luxury right now for any number of reasons, when our children are not safe—whether it's from a war, or from a pandemic, or from guns in this country, or from drivers, or whatever it is—that you don't have the luxury of the security
1: that we have right now. What do you tell your child then? That's a fantastic question, and one that I've wrestled with in my own life, but I'll tell you how I explain it. And I think it resonates with my kids because I've heard them turn around and use it with other people. Mm. So what I say is, I can't promise you that everything's going to be okay, because sometimes things are not okay. But I can promise you that you will get through it and that you'll be strong and you have the tools. And the little expression that I've created with my kids is, I can't stop it from raining, but I can be there to give you an umbrella. Mm. So I can't control guns. I can't control death and loss and these really devastating, hard things that everyone's going to endure. But I can reassure them that they have strength and that we can get through really hard times and that those times just naming and validating that they are hard instead of saying, you know, everything's okay. We're, we're all right. You're okay. You're going to be, you're going to be all right. It can be so powerful for your little people to hear, you're right. This is how you should feel. This is how I feel. It's understandable that you feel this way. And here's how we're going to get through it. If you're a child and you hear not only that somebody believes you and they validate you, but also that you have some control, that is going to be something that creates so much more security and stability and trust in their lives. It's so interesting because you are giving your children
2: and all the children who read your books and the parents read your books, such tools about how to handle their feelings. But I think so many adults are struggling with their feelings right now. And when we are devastated by what we see in the news or frustrated by living with masks in isolation for two years or watch an insurrection in our capital just absolutely gutted or witness what happened in the Trump era and are so angry. How do we as adults and parents or people who are around children or, or anybody else process our own emotion here without passing that on to our children and to our loved ones? I know that this is something that you think about all the time and, and something that you handled with your own postpartum after your son was born, I don't know how we grapple with what we are feeling in a way that is not going to impact those around us, or or what are the tools that we can use.
1: I think that it's become kind of a trite thing, but saying it's okay to not be okay and really living that is one thing that you can do as a parent, just to, as I said, like model that vulnerability, but. There is something that I've been able to lean into in the past year in particular that's been extremely healing and almost bracing for me, which is giving up some control. And I know it may seem counterintuitive, but saying there's only so much I can control and worrying about it in this moment isn't going to help me. So let's try to do something in the moment that is actually a form of self-care like meditating or watching the rainfall. I did that when my son had eye muscle surgery a couple of weeks ago. He was under anesthesia. He was having surgery. I was scared. And I said, my worries in this moment are not going to change the outcome. So stare outside. It's snowing outside. It looks beautiful. And try to just breathe. And I know that it must sound silly or um, ineffective, but I am somebody who has struggled with control issues for um, as long as you've known me. I've always struggled and tried to, you know, hold on to control and allowing myself to admit that there are things that I will not ever be able to control. And then passing that on to my kids is something that has been probably the most empowering thing that I've learned. And I know that you know this, but on a personal note, I went into the pandemic in a very anxious place in my own life. I... Like you said, I had survived severe postpartum depression in 2013, 2014, and I came out of my depression and things became colorful again, but I had pretty significant anxiety. Uh, You and I are not the most germ-loving people and never have been, so the pandemic really um, was uniquely trying for us with our health anxiety or my own health anxiety and anxiety for the kids but there was a certain point that I just kept saying to myself as a mantra, which I do suggest there's only so much I can control or asking myself, will worrying or perseverating in this situation change the outcome? And if the answer is no, I try to just do something to let it go and to admit that I may be suffering in that moment and to acknowledge my suffering in that moment, but then to take care of myself in a way that works for me. We all have our, our own ways. I know for you, running is really helpful. For me, I might do music, but if we can all kind of put one or two of those things in our tool belts that we can access when we need them, I think it can be very helpful.
2: I think one of the things that you, it's not exactly how you say it, but. You remind me all the time when I have anxious moments as a mom or newly, as a, as a new mom in particular, when everything is so new and, and so many things are happening at one time, you're physically feeling bad and emotionally everything is just sort of uh, in flux, that feelings are valid, but they're not fact just because you feel it doesn't mean it's like, it's going to happen or that it's, it's the reality. And if you are worrying about the worst case scenario, it doesn't make it fact. just because you feel like you're worrying about it. And that has been an incredible tool that you have given me in a way to, to look at sometimes the, the tougher feelings. And I just want to mention before I let you go back to book coming out life, the book mommy ever after that you have coming out now, your first two books are incredible. And I, I urge everyone to go read them too, particularly, um, if you have a new mom in your life or you're going to be a new mom or your daughter or daughter-in-law is going to be a new mom or, you, or whatever it is, uh, you just want to be more emotionally in tune, go, go read them. But mm-hmm. new book, mommy ever after, which we literally read every day in our house. Um, mm-hmm. it's such a special book for this moment because Uh, I think that it's impossible to hide how we're feeling from our kids and we shouldn't hide how we're feeling from our kids. And so to have a beautifully illustrated book and a beautifully told sweet story with a little girl who has glasses, which your daughter had glasses when she was little. I had glasses when I was little and I never saw another child in a story who had glasses. And, and I know this sounds so silly and it's such a, infinitesimal problem uh, when we have an entire episode talking about physical safety and, you know, 50 children in Ukraine being injured and 37 children dying so far in two weeks having glasses is nothing. But when you're a kid who has glasses, uh, it doesn't feel like nothing. And those feelings are real too. And so to see that on the page is really important and it feels really, really sweet. And um, this book to me is a perfect introduction into how we should talk to our kids about all this tough stuff, how your kids can have a roadmap for it feeling okay to talk about this stuff and okay to see their parents feel this stuff too. And so for anyone who has a kid in their life, I urge you to to read and buy this book and give it as a gift to anyone who is listening to this who is a friend of mine who has a kid we'll be getting this gift as a book for every birthday to come. So um, get used Mm -hmm. to it. (laughs) You'll see a lot of it. And I'm just so grateful back for obviously everything you do for me personally, but for you bringing these tools and this beautiful book and your wisdom to us here and into the world. I'm just eternally grateful for it.
1: Uh, Well, you are the greatest gift that I've ever received. (laughs) Um, And I mean that. And something about the book that I wanted to make sure to emphasize two things. Most people who read this book are not going to pick it up and say, this is a book about mental health. So that's a good thing because I think it's um, relatable and digestible and it is beautifully illustrated. I have nothing to do with it. So I feel like I can say that, but it is enchanting looking and I think it's approachable. So you can read a book and not have any idea that you're actually getting a lesson from it or, that you're getting some tools from it. Um, and so I think that that's, that's good to know because I don't want you to think it's going to be a didactic heavy. It's not homework. It's, 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 it's a children's book that
2: I would pick up off of my shelf. Like I would pick up Lyle Lyle Crocodile or. Mm.
1: It's, it's sneaky um, like educational. It's like totally. it sneaks in there a little bit, but the other thing that is one of the biggest things that I like to emphasize is that like a storm or anything tumultuous, we all have these feelings and they all pass. So these feelings that weigh heavily on us are all temporary. We all evolve. And so so there's a storm scene in the book and it just shows that they're having a simultaneous negative emotion. But just like a storm, the feelings pass. And that's really important to know too, because for kids, as they're young, and even as they grow older, they can feel like every moment is everything, you know, they get really fixated, and my life's never going to be okay. And I'm always going to feel this way. So from a young age, to be able to say to them, yeah, you feel really yucky in this moment, but in an hour, you won't feel that way anymore, um, can be really helpful. And you mentioned something before also that I thought was important to touch on, which is when you are in a situation, it's very easy to convince yourself that the worst is about to happen and to brace for that, right? Like we prepare ourselves for difficult things. And I think that, A, like you said, remembering that there's no connection between how much you believe something and how true it actually is. It's I used to have it as the background on my phone to remind myself. So you said that perfectly. And the fact that there's no relationship and there's no real connection between how true something is and how much you believe it's true. The more you believe it, it does not make it any more true, which can be really helpful. And at the same time, one of the exercises that I do with my kids is when they are perseverating or worrying about something, I like to say, um, you can sometimes get yourself on a carousel of negative emotions. Mm -hmm. And so even when you get over one, you jump onto another horse that's taking you on a scary ride. So Mm -hmm. in order to get off those scary carousels, trying to say, okay, what is the worst case scenario? and naming it. What is the best case scenario and naming it? And what is the most likely scenario? And it's most often somewhere in the middle. And that's what happens. So I think stating these, all these things, but then acknowledging what's realistically going to happen is also something that can take down the temperature of that anxiety a little bit so that you can feel worried, but it doesn't prevent you from doing what you want to do.
2: I think that that is, such a helpful way to talk to your kids and to think about all of this stuff. And I'm so happy that you came to talk to all of us about this. Everyone go pick up our book. Mommy Ever After is out Tuesday, March 15th, Tuesday, March 15th. I don't even know what day it is anymore, but that (laughs) I believe is next week. And I love you. Thank you for everything and for coming by and and being with us.
1: I love you the most.
2: Thank you so much to our guests, Rebecca Foxstar and Miriam Elder, and of course, my co host, Joe Hagen. If you enjoyed these conversations, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a nice review while you're there. Thanks to Brett Fuchs, our amazing producer, and folks at Cadence 13 for their production work as well. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors. Please be sure to support them any way you would support this podcast. We will see you next week.